Today, we are continuing our series in, on the book of Revelation, and um, we are finishing the last of the seven letters that Jesus had the Apostle John write to these churches. And there were seven different letters, seven different churches addressed, and seven different things that were going on with these churches. And the things that were addressed with these churches are things that churches clear up to this day deal with. And so these are good letters for us to look at, and even individuals. We can say to this, so these letters were addressed to the pastor of each church. So as a pastor, I would look at some of these and say, wow, you know, maybe this is our church, or oh, this must be what's going on in our church. And then so as a pastor, I would address that, or I would seek God and say, what do we need to do, Lord? Is this something that we're heading in this direction or, or, or whatever, you know? And then as an individual, you can say, maybe, maybe you're reading that and you're like, whoa, this sounds a lot like me. I think I need to do what Jesus is saying here because in all of these letters, Jesus ends them with what they need to do to get back on track. So in today, what we'll look at, one of these things he says is, I correct and discipline those who I love. So he's like a loving, he's a loving father in heaven who corrects and disciplines his children and his church so that we can be the example to the world to draw more people to him. Amen? And so uh, just to kind of give a, a quick little, just a really quick review, two of the seven churches that were addressed in these letters were spiritually healthy. They were in a good place. Um, one was Smyrna. I think that was the second church that we looked at. And the other was Philadelphia. We looked at that uh, last week. And these churches, Philadelphia, they passed Jesus' inspection with an A+. Not one bad thing was said in the letter to them. So they were like the model church. And then Smyrna, Smyrna had endured heavy persecution. But Jesus says, but you are rich. You're enduring this the way that you ought to as believers. So you're passing my inspection. And then two of the churches, they had some signs of health. There was still a little bit of health in the church, but they had some serious spiritual issues going on in the church. A lot of idolatry and sexual immorality and things that they were doing uh, one of the churches had this lady who had a spirit of Jezebel who was teaching a false doctrine, and the leaders in the church were allowing this to take place. Um, another one, they were, they were allowing, oh, the other one, so these churches were uh, Pergamum, the city in Pergamum, and then Thyatira. Thyatira is the one that had the spirit of Jezebel, and Pergamum was in a city where Jesus said, Satan sits on his throne. So Pergamum was like, I just picture it like this, this really dark, demonically oppressed city. And these spiritual practices had infiltrated the church. But these churches were in some bad shape. But Jesus said, there's still a faithful few among you. And so again, here's what you need to do. And then three of the churches, well, three of them didn't get a good report at all. They were near spiritual death. Like they were near, they were dying churches. They, one of them, Jesus said, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. And, and so if they didn't get back on track, Jesus says, if you, you need to repent, turn back to me. And then he gives them a, a, some things to do that will get them back to where they need to be. And these churches were Ephesus. Now this is a famous church, right? Because a letter was written to them, Ephesians. But the church in Ephesus was in bad shape. 
The church in Sardis was in bad shape. And then the church that we're going to look at today in Laodicea is in bad shape. Now, the letter that we're going to look at today is quite possibly the harshest letter Jesus wrote to the churches. So Laodicea, I don't know if he saved it for last for a specific reason or, or, or what, but, but as we'll see in the map, we, we went up the, the Mediterranean coast and then we come back down. Laodicea was in bad shape. But before we get into that, let's, let's give a little context of what the city was like so that we have this, this idea of what we're looking at here. So Laodicea was 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. So we started with Ephesus, Smyrna, went up to Pergamos or Pergamum, and then we came back down. And fun fact, the city of Coloss is just, I think, 10 miles uh, north or east, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later, of Laodicea. So Colossians, we get that book, was to the city of Coloss. And then it was 90 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus. Now Laodicea was the wealthiest city in the area of its time, like extremely wealthy. Um, and it was the center for fashion, financing, and medicine, healthcare. Uh, they, they had a lot of fashion, they had a lot of, of expensive fabrics that they would make clothes out of, um, uh, uh, the banking industry was lucrative, uh, there was a lot of investing going on, a lot, they would be like their Wall Street of the day, right? All the money was in Laodicea. As a matter of fact, in the year 60 AD, Laodicea was completely destroyed by an earthquake, and they needed no outside financial aid from Rome. They, they rebuilt the city themselves. That would be like Columbus being, being leveled and saying, um, sorry, President, we don't need any of your help. We've got enough money. You know, Laodicea was well off. And the city was also famous for its medical school. Now, so was the city of Pergamum. Right? If you remember, they had, a, they had a, a, a very famous medical school. And then Laodicea was kind of in a different area um, of, of, of medicine. They had doctors who were skilled at compounding ointments and creams and salves that would heal the skin and heal the body. And most uh, uh, in particular was an eye salve. They, they, they worked on the eyes. So maybe they were the, um, what do you call it, optometrists of their time. But if you had an issue with your eyes, you might go to Laodicea to see if they had something that would help that. Um, and then, like many of the other cities that we looked at, Laodicea was a center for the worship of Roman emperors. And, and this is a cult. And this, it was a cult of worship. Um, and so it made, made this cult of, of worshiping Roman emperors was hard to get away from because it was big in this city. Um, and so that gives us a little bit of context. And then we have another little fun fact that we're going to look at later um, that, that will tell us where we get a very kind of famous Christian saying from, which I can't wait to share with you. So, so let's just jump right into it. Revelation chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 14. So here we go. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is to the pastor. The pastors are referred to as angels. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, all of these letters in chapter 1, we get a very descriptive look at Jesus, that side of heaven. 
And, this, and, 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 and each letter is started out with a, a part of that character of Jesus is that he wants to use to address each church. But in this letter, he doesn't use any of those characteristics. He uses his own characteristics that he would use to define himself. He is the one who is the amen. That's a word that we use every time we end with a prayer, right? Or you might hear me sneaking in there and go, amen? So in the Greek, the word amen means so be it. Or what's the other one? Let it be so. It's a way of agreeing what we just prayed for. But I think that Jesus was using this more in the Hebrew term, which means to be reliable or to be trusted. Jesus says, I am the one who is reliable. I am the one who is to be trusted. Jesus is the reliable one who can be trusted. The only one that we can trust with all our heart. But he's also the faithful and true witness. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, there's a famous story here that, and, and we're going to look at this here, and we're, we're going we're to jump around a little bit, but we're going to look at, at John chapter 5, verse 16. But just to give you some context here, this is a story that when I read this, I say, God, I, I am, I'm curious as to why. So you, the beginning of this, of this chapter here, Jesus walks into this place called the Pool of Bethesda where there are crowds of sick people, crippled people, lame, hurting people. They would, they would be in this area, all right? One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Jesus saw him, knew he had been ill for a long time, and said, would you like to get well? And the guy says, yeah. And he says, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the guy was healed. He'd been crippled for 38 years. That's the only person Jesus healed out of everywhere. I mean, that would be like going to the ICU unit and walking into one room and then walking out with that guy as he's healed. That's what Jesus did. I don't understand why one person, but he knows better than I do. Well, the only problem here, Jesus, is that you did this on the Sabbath. Now, all the Jewish religious leaders know that you are not supposed to work on the Sabbath, let alone heal somebody, right? So, so let's pick this up in verse 16. It says this. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. You healed someone who's been crippled for 38 years, Jesus. You ought to know better than that. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath... He called God his father, thereby making himself equal to God. Boy, this made these guys mad. So then Jesus starts talking to them. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. And he continues to explain stuff like this to them. And then we jump down into uh, verse 37. And Jesus says this. And the father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts, because you do not believe me, the one who sent, who the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they have eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this 
life. That's what Jesus says to them. So, so this to me is the faithful witness. Jesus is the amen, the one who is reliable, the one who is true, the faithful witness to the Father. And then he uses another interesting phrase in the beginning of that letter. He says he is the beginning of God's creation. And we can read that in Colossians. Now, Colossians was Coloss. The city of Coloss was just 10 miles, 10 or 6 miles from uh, Laodicea. And listen to this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. That is Jesus. That is the one who is reliable, the one who is true, the one who is the beginning of God's new creation. That's our Savior. He is the faithful one and true. He existed before anything else was created. And in my notes, in all caps, it says this, and all scripture points to him. From the very first word in the book of Genesis to the very last word in the book of Revelation, all scripture points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is steady and he does not change. He is worth every bit of putting our trust in him. It's Jesus. Now let's continue in this letter here to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, chapter 15. We're just going to read a couple verses. Here's what he says. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Whew. How'd you like to get all excited because Jesus wrote a letter to you, pastor, and then that's what you started reading. Like, in New King James, he says, vomit you out of my mouth. But we've all heard this phrase, right? Don't be a lukewarm Christian. You don't want to be lukewarm, right? We know this comes from this passage right here. But do you know where it really comes from? So Jesus is speaking their language. So here's the deal. As, as, um, this is an, an interesting analogy that the Laodiceans would understand all too well. See, they didn't have any natural water sources in their city. So they had to have it piped in through these stone aqueducts. And they piped it in from uh, Coloss, which was 10 miles east of the city. And Coloss was known for its cold water springs. So they had cold water. Then there was another city um, named Heropolis, which was six miles north, and they were known for their hot water springs. As a matter of fact, they were pools of hot water that people would come to for healing. I, I think of it as like maybe um, uh, like saunas or, or you know, like, like hot water. You got back problems, you want to go to Heropolis, sit in one of those hot pools or something. That's where I would be half the time. <sighs> so there was hot water being piped in from Coloss, uh, or cold water, and hot water being piped in from Heropolis. Just one problem, though. By the time it reached Laodicea, it was 
lukewarm. So warm it was disgusting, nauseating. And the only people who drank it were visitors of the city, and they only drank it once. It was disgusting. So Jesus said, you're just like this water you guys have. I don't want to spit you out of my mouth. That's what you're like. That's what your faith to me looks like. Now here's the deal, church. On the spiritual spectrum, we all fall somewhere, right? Like hot on fire for Jesus. Usually you're, you're a new believer. You, you, you're so in love with Jesus. He's changed your life. He's doing all these things for you. You're telling everybody about him to cold. Jesus doesn't do anything for me. I tried it. It didn't work. Uh, the church upset me. Something was said. Something was done. I didn't like what happened. Uh, they painted the walls in the nursery. It happens. They didn't greet me on my way in. And they're cold. Jesus says, I wish you guys are lukewarm. You're right here in the middle. I wish you were either hot. I wish you were either cold. At least then, I would know where you stand. And so would everybody else. But you're lukewarm. What does that mean? It means you're indifferent. See, we don't want to be lukewarm. It means we're complacent in our faith. Now, I might use a few adjectives that might kind of hit home, and hopefully not, but one of them is going to be the word lazy. We don't want to be lazy Christians. Listen to what Isaiah says in, in chapter, 14, uh, chapter 42. This is uh, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the Israelites, but to us. You see and recognize what is right, but refuse to act on it. You hear with your ears, but you don't really listen. That sounds like a lot of parents, doesn't it? <laughs> you see and recognize what is right, but you don't act on it. You hear with your ears, but you don't listen. Here's what Paul said to the church in Rome. And, and this, this goes with the, the Christian life, but, but, but we wanna, I want to put this into our, the spiritual context. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. As an employee... And a Christian, you want to work enthusiastically as unto the Lord so that you are an example to what a Christian is supposed to be like to your co-workers. And then in the book of Hebrews. Now, the writer in Hebrews, um, he's speaking to the Jewish believers, but also this goes to us. He's trying to tell them to put, a little, to put some more effort in your spiritual growth. So in Hebrews chapter 5, he's talking about um, really some, some heavy theological stuff about the, the priestly line and how Jesus is a part of this high priesthood. And, and he's kind of going into some deep stuff here. But then he says this in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Now, now, again, you get this letter, right? And you're all excited to read it, and then you get to a part like this. How does that make you feel? What do you mean I'm spiritually dull? You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. That is a lukewarm Christian. You know, if you've been coming to church for 20, 30 years and you don't want to get involved, that's who this is talking about. 
Like, you ought not need another sermon to help your spiritual walk. You should be involved on Sunday morning to help people who need another sermon, to help new believers who come to the church, to lead a class to help people get to where you're at in your spiritual life. See, lukewarm, lazy Christians pose the greatest threat to the gospel of Jesus because of their indifference to it. Most people, when we talk about love, right, what is the opposite word, what's the opposite action of love? Hate, right? Love and hate. They're two ends like hot and cold. But there's something that's worse than that. Indifference. See, love and hate are feelings and emotions that the other person will know where I stand with them. He really loves me. Man, why does he hate me so much? Indifference says, you're not worth me putting in the effort to have an opinion about you. I don't know where you stand with me. I don't know where I stand with you. And this is what Jesus is saying. A lukewarm Christian is saying that Jesus is not worth putting in the effort to have an opinion about. That's the worst kind of Christian out there. That's where Laodicea was. Jesus is not worth putting forth the effort to share him with others. Now this is different than I'm too shy I really wish I could. I try, but I mess it up. If you're trying, you're trying. But if you're going through the motions on Sunday and then nobody knows where you stand in your spiritual walk Monday through Saturday, you might want to evaluate things because you might fall in this category. Now, there could be a lot of things that cause a Christian to be lukewarm. We'll, I'll throw out some of those things later. But in the case of the Laodiceans, it was their wealth. That's what it was. So let's continue to read this letter here. Verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. This is Jesus speaking to the church. He's actually speaking to the pastor about his church. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Kind of a harsh letter, right? Like, holy goodness. So, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. And they're all letters to churches, right? And one that he wrote to a young man that he, that he taught how to be a pastor. It was his protege. The man's name was Timothy. And Timothy pastored in the church of Ephesus. Big church, major church. They got their own letter in here, in the Bible. Paul writes, writes this. Ephesus was also a city where there was a lot of wealth and a lot of you know, stuff happening. It was a big city. It was a, it was a major port in the Mediterranean area, the Asia Minor area. So Paul writes this to Timothy in Timothy chapter 6. P 
people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. You know, we just took our Easter offering, right, about a month ago. And this church raised for actually even more. We're up to like $71,400 that this church alone raised to go to three different missions that we support around the world. I'm pretty confident that there's not a whole lot of people here that rely on their finances to see them through life. This church, I believe, I am confident in saying, understands the phrase, investing in the kingdom. Because when you invest in the kingdom, you're investing in Jesus. And just like Jesus said, Jesus spoke the language that the Laodiceans would understand. They were investors. They had a lucrative banking industry. They were all about making money. And, Jesus, and, and if you're in investments and stuff right now, you might want to say it would be a good idea to buy gold. And that's what Jesus says. If you want to be rich, buy gold from me. Well, listen, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, right? The damage comes when wealth is the main focus. And the Bible, several places, talks about this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Proverbs chapter 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. When you honor the Lord with your money, when you invest in the kingdom, when you do the things you believe you ought to be doing with your money. That's what this is about. And, and nowadays, we, 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 might, we might not all have barns, right? But your bank account will not run low. Your bills will always be paid, and your cupboards will be full. How about that? Or maybe good wine. I don't know. Often what happens, though, is that people see their wealth as a product of their hard work and their perseverance in the work that they've done. And they begin putting their trust in that, in their wealth, in themselves, in what they have accumulated, without giving any type of recognition to God. That's the caveat to this. That's what is happening in Laodicea. And this gives people a false sense of security because you're now relying on your worldly wealth, and not on the kingdom of God. And this is the church in Laodicea. This is where they were at. And Jesus gives them a stern warning in his report to them. He says, you don't realize you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's their report. Now, for the wealthy believers in the church, or maybe a wealthy believer altogether who has kind of lost their focus of Jesus, that might be a hard pill to swallow. Like, I'm, I would probably be willing to bet that a few people in that church were like, what the heck is he talking about? And get a little defensive. But imagine being told that. Like, listen, you know what? I know we're good friends here, and I know that we both started this Christian walk out together, but I feel like you are wretched and, and, and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That better be a good friend you're talking to. 
because they might not be a good friend after that. Or they would say, whoa, you know what? You're right. But here's the deal. This probably was a hard pill to swallow. Imagine, especially when you live in a culture, right, where the latest fashions were worn, the nicest of clothes, all of the stuff, the jewelry and the, and, and, and the, the, the material clothes were made out of. The best medical treatment for eye conditions could be found, and there was a lucrative banking industry. Like, finance, like, like wealth was common. We're all wealthy here. We've all worked hard for this. We've invested. We've, we've started businesses. We've got lots of money. We're doing well. And then Jesus speaks to them in a way that they would be able to understand. The remedy is to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. So what exactly does that mean? Well, here's the deal. At some point in time, we are all going to have to give an account of our lives as believers to Jesus. And this is referred to as the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. And we'll read about this later on in this, in this series. But here's the deal. Is our foundation, our foundation on Jesus, our Christian life, the, the, what we build our foundation on, like Jesus did this teaching, and he says, a person who builds a house ought to build their house on solid ground. That's Jesus. But if you build your house, your life, which is your life, on, on rocky ground, on sandy ground, when the storms come, it's going to wash all that ground, all that foundation away, and you're going to be in trouble. Jesus is our solid rock. Remember, he's reliable, he's trusted, he's true, he's immovable. So when we build our foundation on him, we are building it with resources such as gold, silver, and jewels, and these are things that would withstand purification of fire. Or we could build our foundation on him, but our resources are going to be wood, hay, or straw, things that will not stand withstand the purification of fire. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a whole passage on this. And Paul is speaking, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and he, and he talks about this. He talks about building your foundation on Christ, and he says this, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. And if you built your life, your Christian life, if you built it on the foundation with gold, silver, or jewels, then a reward will be received. But if you built your Christian life with, on Jesus with wood, hay, or straw, you will get into heaven, but your behind's going to be a little singed. You're going to escape the fire but just barely. Now here's the thing. This judgment does not determine our salvation. Okay? This is the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. And I have to believe that even if you built your life on Christ with wood, hay, or straw, you're still getting into heaven. So um, Simon Forsythe, who was a pastor here for a while, he's no longer alive, but, but he, he had this, this saying. You ready for this? doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you get there. <laughs> you want to get to heaven, so do your best. You're, you, you may be building a life with wood, hay, or straw, but you're going to get in. Think of the thief on the cross. 
right? He said, Jesus, please remember me today as you enter into paradise. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And he didn't have any time to build any kind of foundation. He was a thief who was being nailed to a cross because of his despicable lifestyle. But Jesus said, you just put your faith in me. Come on, buddy, today's the day. I don't care about anything else you've done. You realized who I am. It's you and me. And so we want to do our best to build our lives on the, on the foundation of Jesus with materials of gold, silver, or jewels. But if we struggle and, and life is hard, and you know, listen, here's the thing. We're all, we all have different life situations that we deal with. Some of it knocks us down hard. Not all of us have been, have been dealt the best hand in life. And sometimes we don't know how to deal with that. And maybe we are building our, our, our foundation with wood, hay, or straw. Maybe we are. But we love Jesus with all our might. And we, just, we just struggle. Well, Jesus is in that struggle with you. And he's going to make sure you get to heaven. You might not have all the rewards that this person over here has, but it doesn't matter. You're in heaven. And that's all that counts, all right? So I want to make, I want to make, make sure that, that we understand it. This judgment is based on what a person did with what they were given as a believer. It has nothing to do with determining our salvation. And, and the very last verse we're going to end this sermon with, you'll see what I'm talking about. But Jesus also tells them, so he says, you know, buy gold from me. People who are in investing, the people who know finances, they know what he's talking about. He says also, buy a, a, a white garments from me. Now, Jesus mentions white garments in his letter to the uh, church in Sardis. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The, the, the color of white in the Bible stands for, uh, represents purity, innocence, and cleanliness. Jesus says, listen, you, 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 by, by the way you live your life, you'll be buying white garments from me. Get yourself back into an area of innocence, an area of purity, an area of cleanliness with me. And also, white also represents a festive color. Because white is what we are all going to be wearing when we partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. It's a great big banquet that we're going to partake in with him. And we'll read about this later on too. But it's, I believe, when we get raptured up, hopefully, before the tribulation period starts, and we will partake in this great banquet with Jesus. We're going to be wearing white robes. And, and we're going to be caught up. And here's what I believe, too. All those believers that have gone before us in heaven, they're going to be there, too. We're all going to be in this great banquet because then Jesus is going to return and the new Jerusalem and the new heaven is going to come down on earth and we're going to come with him on horses. Oh. And we'll look at that later. But, but that's what that means. In Revelation chapter 19, we see a little glimpse of this. It says this, she, that's referring to us, we are the bride of Christ, we're referred to as a she, has been given the finest pure white linen to wear. This is for the marriage supper of the Lamb. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So even if you built your foundation with wood, hay, or straw, you're still going to get a white robe. You're still going to be there. You're going to be wearing white with the rest of us at this great banquet. Now, then, Jesus tells them, you're miserable, you're wretched, you're naked and blind. What does that mean? Naked stands for spiritual adultery. You've replaced me with somebody else, and you're caught in the act. That's what that is. Now, in the Old Testament, 
uh, uh, God had to deal with the Israelites over and over and over for this. And it's all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. They would, they would begin worshiping other gods. They would put other things in place of God. And they were committing spiritual adultery. So much so that there's a prophet by the name of Hosea that God said, I want you to marry a prostitute so that you know what it's like to be me with the Israelites. I want you to have an unfaithful wife because the Israelites are unfaithful to me. And this will be your, um, what, what do they call that? Uh, um, illustrated sermon. <laughs> okay, God. Imagine telling your friends, well, God told me to go marry her. I think her, I think her name was Gomer. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, <laughs> okay. I don't know, man. So, so here's the deal. They are so caught up in the replacement of Jesus with the things of this world, the Laodiceans are, that they are now so spiritually blind, they don't even recognize it. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're, you're blind, you're naked, you don't even know where you're at right now on the spectrum of, of your relationship with me. You've replaced me with wealth. You've replaced me with your business. You've replaced me with your bank account. Now, James gives a similar warning in his book, and, and he says this. Listen to this, James chapter 4. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't be friends with people who aren't believers. That's not what this is talking about. But the moment that we ask Jesus into our lives, the moment we put our trust in him, his, God's Holy Spirit lives within us. And that spirit that he placed within us ought to be faithful to him. And again, that spiritual spectrum from hot to cold, throughout our Christian walk, we, we go back and forth sometimes, right? If lukewarm is in the middle, we, we ought to want to stay over here where the hot is. But sometimes things happen, we go back and forth. This is speaking, James, of those who have been unfaithful to God by replacing him with something or someone else, just like the church in Laodicea did. What do you mean someone else? Well... Maybe you get into a relationship with somebody, they're not a believer, and you've replaced your love for Jesus with this person, and you're no longer going to church. That's what that means. Many of the Old Testament prophets had warned about this as well. Now, let's finish off the rest of the letter. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So there's your remedy. Let him in. There's a famous picture, a painting. It's an old school painting. I was going to put it up, but it just... It's kind of so old, I didn't want to put it up. But it's a picture of Jesus knocking on a door, right? Many of you have probably seen it. He's got a little lampstand, a little uh, lantern. 
if you notice, there's no handle on the outside of the door. The person on the inside has to let him in. So we often use this verse, too, as an invitation for somebody to invite Jesus into their life. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Let him in, we say. And, and, and it's true, right? Like many of us, when we, when, we had a, when we felt a call to salvation, when we felt Jesus knocking on the door to our heart, our hearts might have been pounding, like a pound out of our chest. Because God's Holy Spirit, from the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, the beginning of our conception in life, when we were first born, God was waiting for this moment to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And every part of your being is just ready to jump out of its skin. That's what that is. And we have to open the door and let him in. It's up to us. This is a picture, though, in, 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 in the context of this letter, of Jesus knocking at the door of the Laodicean church because he has been replaced. He's been replaced. He's no longer allowed in the church. That's the deal. Oftentimes, churches have replaced Jesus with other things. Maybe it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's this. We've always done it this way. Why would we do it any differently? We've always had this. You know, this church, we've always had vacation Bible schools for years here. And then, and then you know, we had this big meeting, and we're like, you know, all we're doing is reaching kids whose church parents are just taking them from vacation Bible school to VBS to VBS to VBS. What can we do that would have more weight to it? And we started our upward soccer program, like, gosh, 15 years ago maybe? So the whole community's out here all summer playing soccer. And not all of them go to church. There's more for our return for the kingdom that way. Nothing wrong with vacation Bible schools, by the way. But we just, we, we in, 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 in this church, we're very open to, should we always be doing it like that? Just because we've always done it like this doesn't mean that we can't change. We don't want to replace Jesus with the mindset of, we can't change this. This is the way we've always done it. Or maybe things creep into our lives. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's whatever. So this picture here is Jesus knocking at the door of an entire church or maybe an individual. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is the letter I needed to hear. Well, that's good. That's good that you're thinking that. That means that God's Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to hear this, and now we're in a good spot. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get to where we need to be together. See, it could be an entire church, it could be an individual, you know, maybe we ourselves have replaced Jesus with something or someone, money, material items, maybe it's the indifference of our faith. We're just, we just don't care anymore. Our, 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 we've become lazy. And, and, and maybe it's a relationship that has replaced our love for Jesus. And here's the thing. If we're willing to answer the knock, if we're willing to invite Jesus back in, and if we're willing to allow Jesus to bring the correction and the discipline needed so we can get back to where we once were with him. Remember, Jesus said, I correct and discipline those I love. It, it might hurt at first, but it's going to be much better in the long run. Here's another, that's kind of an old school term. Would you rather have Jesus cut that out with a surgeon's scalpel or a wooden spoon? The wooden spoon means you're fighting it and he's going to get it out either way. The scalpel means you're open to the spiritual surgery that it's going to take to get you where you need to be. 
Allow Jesus to bring the correction and the discipline that gets us back to being hot for him. I mean, back to being on fire for him. That's what we want, right? We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be indifferent with our faith in Jesus. And here's the deal. You sense that knocking? Open the door because there's no handle on his side. It's up to us. And what does he say he'll do? I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. Does that sound like someone who's going to beat you over the head? No. Let's get this taken care of. I want to see you at your best. And if you allow me back in, we will sit down and we will share a meal as friends. Meaning, he will go through life with us as a reliable, trusted friend that we can count on. A friend who is unmovable. A friend who is solid. A friend who doesn't change. A friend who always has the best advice for us. A friend who will see that we are the best representative for him that we can ever be. Because everything about our faith points to Jesus. And if we're not pointing other people to Jesus, our faith is meaningless. When we overcome and fight the temptation of self-confidence, security in, 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 in material things such as wealth or, or worldly relationships, or even a state of indifference with Jesus, being lukewarm, when we overcome these periods of life, these little chapters of life that we might find ourselves in, in the same way that Jesus overcame sin, death, and the devil, in the same way, then we are victorious over such things. Then we will be given the opportunity to sit with Jesus on his throne. How does that sound? I don't know exactly what that means and what that looks like, but Jesus says you will sit with me on my throne just as I sat with my father on his throne. Meaning we will, rule, we will do this together. We will do eternity together. We will be given the opportunity to sit with Jesus. And we will partake in the same victorious glory that Jesus shares. Amen? So I'll close it out really quick with this. These are the letters. Next week, we're going to talk about worship in heaven. Revelation chapter 4. I'm super excited about that. But we're done with the letters. We're going to move on. So here's the deal. All seven letters, they end with a promise to all who are victorious, to all who overcome. No matter where we are at, maybe some of these letters, and maybe you're here today and you're like, oh, I don't, you know what, this is me. I'm, oof, I'm in. The, the promises end with to all who are victorious. It's for all of us. These promises are ours to receive when we adhere to the words of Jesus, when we allow his correction and discipline to take place in our lives. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 5. Ready? I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. See? Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you so much. I thank you for these letters, Jesus, that address all the spiritual issues that churches deal with, people deal with. 
And I think the last and the harshest letter is one that is all too common, Jesus. Sometimes we get to this, we get to this place where we're like, I'm good. I'm so good with Jesus that I'm not even sharing him with anybody anymore. And we've become this lukewarm Christian. And that's the worst place to be. So, so God, if that speaks to anybody here today, I want to ask, Lord Jesus, that they heard your voice in John chapter 5. We're not going to be condemned for our sins. When we open the door, Jesus will come in and share a meal with us. Meaning, he will go through life with us as the trusted and reliable friend that he wants to be in our lives. And I thank you, Jesus, so much for that. And we pray this in your precious name.